O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. This is the first three verses of one of the Psalms for today, Psalm 98. And so we begin this day, this new season, this Easter season, with that joy of proclaiming our salvation. And, and it's a wonderful thing to, to pass through that season of Lent and come into an, a new appreciation of the resurrection and the meaning of the resurrection in our lives. And so here we are. We're at the beginning of Easter season. This is Easter week. And, and we began, of course, with everybody's assumption, which is Jonah, right? <laughs> so we've got the first... Uh, Nine, well, it's actually the whole chapter two of Jonah today, and so the the setting is that Jonah has been in the belly of the fish for three days, and and he prays, saying, "I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and You heard my voice." And so when he does this, he's he's speaking, um, sort of as though he were no longer in the belly of the fish. He's proclaiming the deliverance of God in this passage. He's, he's explaining his situation and everything. He says, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So Jonah is proclaiming now as a thing already accomplished, something that hasn't been, but his faith allows him to proclaim that God is going to lift him up, and he's proclaiming it as though it had already happened. And that doesn't mean that we live in a time when we can, quote, name it and claim it. We can't do that. But, but it doesn't mean that we live under the circumstances either. We believe that God can and will do great things right now for our son Will. We have no earthly idea what's going on as I speak. I have less idea than I hopefully will have when you hear this. But, but we're claiming in our hearts and we're believing is a better way to say it. Claiming is not what I'm doing. I'm believing that God's going to do something because I know that he can, in spite of the fact it looks completely hopeless, you know, that, that he's ever going to make much of a recovery or whatever. I mean, I don't know. I have no earthly idea. The doctors don't either. I've been around long enough to have seen miracles. I've seen people recover fully from things that they shouldn't have recovered at all from, that they should have died from. And so I'm just believing this, right? And so I'm living today as though. God's going to do a full miracle here. I don't have any idea. And that's what that's what Jonah is doing here. And he, he's got full faith in this because he believes that God's doing this thing for a reason. He believes that, that he put him into the belly of the fish for a reason, and it's three days later, and he's still alive. And so Jonah believes this is for a purpose, and God's going to deliver him because God gave him a job to do, and he hasn't done that job yet. And so, so he begins to proclaim, yet you brought my life up from the pit. 
when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's the end of the reading today, but the next verse is Jonah being vomited up onto dry land and the Lord renewing the call on his life. He had not fulfilled the work that he had been given to do. And so he got a second chance to do that, but he was three days in the belly of the fish. And, and we see that as the, quote, sign of Jonah that Jesus says that he will give to this unbelieving and perverse generation. It will be the sign of Jonah, who was three days gone from this earth. It's a tough thing to proclaim that, but like I said, Jonah sort of comes to himself here and realizes, wait a minute, this is an implausible situation, and yet I'm still alive here in the belly of this great fish, and so the Lord must have another plan, and he declares salvation belongs to the Lord and to none other. And so that's when his deliverance comes, and he goes about doing the work that God gave him to do, and, and that's the way we need to see things. Sometimes we can get caught up in the spiral of not knowing, and we can get caught in the spiral of because we don't know something, because it's darkness all around us, then, then we give in to the darkness, and we give in to fear, and we give in to despair. And, and the reminder is always from the resurrection that nothing is final because Jesus has returned from the dead. So no judgment is final. Even death is not the final answer. And so we proclaim always salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus is speaking to his disciples here in John 14. This is at the Last Supper, and he's trying to comfort them and says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's a big ask, right? I mean, you compare those two things or put those two things side by side, and it's a big ask for Jesus to combine those two, believe in God and believe also in me. And so you're asking me to believe, wow, that you're the same it's, it's a huge statement. And then he goes on to tell the little parable of in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Now, the first part of that is bridegroom kind of imagery. The bridegroom would would they would make the wedding contract, and then the bridegroom would go, and he would add a room onto the home of his parents. And then when that was done, the wedding feast would occur, and then he would take the bride, they would go back, and they would consummate the marriage, and they would live in that room in his father's house. And so Jesus is saying to the disciples, this is exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to be gone for a season of time, but I'll come back, and I'll get you it includes all of us, and I'll take you to that place that I have prepared for you. And then he ends it by saying, and you know the way to where I'm going. And, and I, I can't imagine what they were thinking, except for I, I know what at least Thomas was thinking, and as we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus says those powerful words, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
no one comes to the Father except through me. Those are the central truths of our proclamation in the gospel, that Jesus, the only one in history who has been resurrected from the dead, is the, is the only way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to the Father except through Jesus. He didn't leave room for multiple claims and multiple paths. He intended to foreclose those opportunities with these words, in fact. And what he says is, if you had known me, you would have known the Father. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And you can just you can almost see Jesus' eyes go cast down in his head following. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And then he points to the words that he speaks and the works that he's done and says, don't you see? Don't you see from everything you've seen and everything you heard, Philip, can't you see that I and the Father are one, that there's this unity among the two of us? And again, that's a big, big ask. All these things are big asks at this moment. The resurrection hasn't occurred. Yes, he's done incredible things, and his teaching, everybody has acknowledged, has authority, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. So there's a different thing about Jesus. But to say, I and the Father are one is a lot. It's more than... than probably anybody really could have taken in at that moment because nobody ever heard of God coming to earth. He's going to send a Messiah, yes, but to ask and to say what Jesus says here is is kind of a bridge too far at that moment, and it awaits the resurrection. It awaits the outpouring of the Spirit later. Those two things. It's impossible for the natural person to conceive of God in the flesh. It, it's it's so abnormal that it's impossible to conceive of such a thing. But then he makes this promise that whoever believes in him will also do the works that he do. And in fact, he says, greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. And then whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And so what we do, we need to live in the Spirit just as Jesus lived, fully present in the Father in the course of his life, and he did so by prayer. And prayer is a two-way communication, remember? And so it's listening as well. I'm not so good at listening. I'm a whole lot better at talking. And so that's the thing we always have to remember is that if we abide in him, and we do that by prayer, by being in the word of God, by being in worship of God, all those things help us to abide in him. And when we do, then we'll know what he's asking us to pray. We'll ask according to his will because we've been abiding in him. It won't be an emotional thing for us. It won't be a, this is what I want. Jesus says, if you ask these things in my name, if you're abiding in me, then you'll know what to ask for. That's what it means in Psalm 37 when it says to give us the desires of our heart. So if he places those desires there, then we're praying in accordance with his will and we'll see great things happen. And I've seen miracles happen. I've seen plenty of them. And I want to be in that place again. It's been a long time, I feel like, in some ways, since I've been in that place where I knew that, that I was praying in accordance with God's will in interesting, strange, and, and difficult situations, and, and that's where I want to be again. Not just for my son, but for 
everybody that I come into contact with. Peter, at the in the Acts um, reading today, begins to proclaim about Jesus. This is on the day of Pentecost, and his proclamation is just straight up. It's about Jesus. He says, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. I mean, nobody's denying that Jesus did these great things. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The hands of lawless men is a reference to the Roman government because the Jews didn't have the uh, ability to put people to death and certainly not on a Roman cross. And so they, what he's saying is is that he's giving them exactly the circumstances that happened here. But he's also assuring them that God knew all this was going to happen in advance. He says that Jesus, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he quotes from David, from the Psalms. I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. And those that language at the end, my flesh also will dwell in hope, is reminiscent of, of Job's cry that in my eyes I shall see God. And so he, he knew that truth, and therefore he dwelt in hope in the same way that Jonah does in that passage that we read today. And so then Peter proclaims that we know that David has died and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So David is speaking of something else, and he's saying that he's a prophet, and he's speaking a prophetic word about this one who will come, who will always be before him, and that his soul will not be abandoned to Hades or the Holy One see corruption. So what Peter's argument is, David can't be talking about himself. It's impossible, even though he says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter's argument is, David is clearly not speaking of himself. There's somebody else that David is speaking of, and he's speaking prophetically in this word, and he says that this is talking about Jesus, the one God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. We saw it. We're not here to tell you what we believe. We're here to tell you what we have seen. The comfort in, in that message is, is that God knew all these things before any of them even happened. And the, so the comfort is, is that, that, yes, you did these things, but it was according to the plan and the foreknowledge of God. Therefore, salvation is on tap today because God had a plan and God has a call. God has a purpose and he has a future for you. Today is the day. Let us declare the salvation of the Lord and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the surety of eternal life one therein.